This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss important health-related questions to provide you information that you can trust will be faithful to the dignity of the human person as understood by the Catholic Church. Today we're going to cover a medical news article, which is more of a, a blog post based on recent letter from the bishops to the government about the HHS contraception mandate. We'll have a preventive medicine tip of the day from Dr. Andrew Mullally, and then the medical trivia question of the day. Before we go to the second segment of the show and interview our regular co-host, Dr. Chris Stroud, about NAPRO technology. And because we're interviewing Chris today, he's also in studio with us, and we'll be commenting on this interesting blog post titled, 10 Reasons Why I Hate Birth Control, a Womanifesto, manifesto with a W-O by Nicole Stacy. And the first thing that she states of her 10 reasons is number one, women ain't broke, don't fix them. That's not fake news, is it, Tom? That's not fake news. It's the real deal, isn't it, Chris? It is the real deal. Yeah, I mean, you have to wonder about that. We're, what is it we're trying to repair with this medication? You know, typically in medicine, we treat diseases with medicines. This would suggest that a woman's fertility is somehow broken and we need to treat it as though it were disease and make it go away. I always like it when I hear people talk about the risk of pregnancy. You know, there's a risk of being in a car accident. There's not, there's not a risk of pregnancy. A second point she makes is, you're not crazy. Birth control can make you miserable. Have you seen this? I've, I've actually seen that a lot, and I've had patients who are very in favor of contraceptives bring it to me and say, I think the pill is making me crazy. I'm looking for some other way to either regulate fertility or manage other health problems. And so they, a lot of times patients identify this themselves. Some of our listeners might relate to that personally. And there's actually some really good research that shows treating women with depression is much more difficult if they're on artificial contraception because it affects their hormones. That's not a surprise. And it affects their dopamine and their serotonin and all of the other things that produce our mood. And I've heard women say that the very thing that birth control pills are supposed to make easier for them, they're no longer interested in when they're on the contraceptives. Uh, that's very real. I certainly, as an OBGYN of almost 25 years, have seen that time and time again, that libido or the interest in intimacy is negatively affected by artificial contraception. Number three on her list is the pill raises the risk of breast cancer. Now, that's, that's supposed to be controversial, right? There's a lot of people in the secular media who really don't like to talk about that. They'd assert that's not true, but we've got really good data to support that, especially with the estrogen-containing birth controls. And, and even an arm of the international UN healthcare agency says that certain birth control pills are a class one carcinogen. They Absol cause absolutely. Cancer. You know, it's funny, anecdotally, what I think of when I hear that is for the last 15 years, whenever I've talked to a postmenopausal patient about her hot flashes, and if I suggest that she take estrogen for them, she immediately says, no, 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 that'll cause <laughs> breast cancer. And I find that interesting, isn't it? That the estrogen doesn't cause breast cancer in young women. It only causes breast cancer in elderly women. Isn't that phenomenal? <laughs> well, and, and that really comes to bear when you see the people who suffer the most from breast cancer, especially the elderly and the folks who have not carried children, the folks that uh, have carried fewer children, a higher level of estrogen throughout their lives. The fourth thing on your list is birth control kills some of us outright. Have you known any of these cases? Absolutely. There are some very high-profile cases where healthy young women, there was an Olympiad several years ago who died of a blood clot that went to her lungs called a pulmonary embolus when she was using the, the Nuva ring. Very, very um, devastating, yet very real and not talked about. Number five, some contraceptives can cause an early abortion. Oh, really? Well, it depends what you call an abortion because ACOG redefined that in the 60s. ACOG being? American College of OBGYN. In the 1960s, they redefined when life begins, when pregnancy begins as implantation, which we really know is a couple of days, weeks down the pipe, I believe seven to 10 days. Chris, you probably could tell me better. That's right. And, you know, that's not theology. That's biology, right? Would any biologist suggest that life begins at some time other than when sperm and egg meet? But yet the American college in its wisdom redefined that. So things like 
intrauterine devices and the so-called morning after pill would not be called abortifacients or abortion-causing medications. Yet the reality is they are. Number six on our list is that while contraceptive pills are used for other conditions besides preventing fertility, less dangerous alternative medications exist, like for irregular periods, like for polycystic ovarian syndrome, like for acne. Well, it, it makes me think of, of other things in medicine, you know, like smoking, for example. We don't encourage people to switch to menthols. You know, we, we tell them smoking is bad and you really should quit if it's what's good for you. So when given a choice between something that's a good option, a medium option or a bad option, to offer them the medium and bad options, it's really unethical, I think, from a medical perspective. I agree. Uh, number seven, the cult of the pill helps keep us ignorant. Ignorant of their menstrual cycle. Absolutely. I mean, time and again, I encounter young women and their husbands who are struggling with infertility, who they've been on birth control pills maybe 10 or 15 years, covering up a disease process, masking the symptoms. By and large, the most common treatment offered to women for endometriosis or painful menstrual periods is artificial contraception, which the, the research is very clear, does nothing for the disease, only masks the symptoms so that later on when they're ready to be pregnant, they find they've been struggling from a disease all of these years. If you just tuned in, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio. Number eight on her list of 10 reasons why she hates birth control is the illusion of control. You know, I would call that the sex without consequence. <laughs> the idea is that there can be uh, sexual intercourse and have absolutely no consequence. Isn't, isn't that a philosophical force to think that anything, least of all intimacy, <laughs> could not have a consequence? But that's how it was sold to America and the world in the 60s. But this will allow you total freedom. We know that that's anything but true. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I just read an editorial today in one of my dermatology journals. Dermatology used to be a specialty with an and. It was dermatology and syphilology. The American journals were dermatology and syphilology, the study of syphilis. And this man wrote the editorial saying that, oh, we thought in this country syphilis was going to be gone as of like 15, 20 years ago. But even he said in the secular journal, who would have thought about the sexual revolution, so-called, and the increased use of contraceptives and the so-called sex without consequences that has led to an increase five to six times higher now than 20 years ago with the number of syphilis cases in this country. There are consequences. Number nine, birth control, there's a lead-in, contributes to the spread of STDs or sexually transmitted diseases. And you know, Tom, you, this makes me think of an author that I got to meet one time, Matt Hanley from California, yes. who does a really good, he, he's got a really good book outlining the rise of AIDS in Africa after there was a proliferation of condoms. The thought was from a lot of uh, UN organizations and the Bill and Melinda Gate Foundation that if we give enough people condoms, we can stop the spread of AIDS. But there's very good data to show that the AIDS has only really increased since birth control has been widely available. Yeah, he showed in his book it only decreased in Uganda which said they needed to change their lifestyle instead of using condoms. In number 10, she says, oh, and this is so true, birth control is not environmentally friendly. Isn't that interesting? You, you have to wonder, what happens to all of those birth control pills that get thrown away? Do they go into the water system? <laughs> Do they go into the trash system and eventually make their way to the water tables? There's certainly a lot of interesting theories. I'm not so sure about the science behind them that really will suggest some environmental hazards related to all of these artificial hormones that are now in the environment. Oh, there are streams where they've shown that the fish, instead of being 50-50 male and female, are about... 80% female, 5% male, and 15% something in between, or a hermaphrodite. Uh, I've also shown studies that show that the sperm counts in men in Washington, D.C. have dropped precipitously in that in the Potomac River, you can find levels of contraceptives. And there are many other studies uh, suggesting this. So it does seem to be 
a real problem. That doesn't surprise me about D.C. at all. <laughs> it explains a lot, doesn't it? You know, as we think about this topic, though, and her, her really uh, well-written and, and pointed blog, at, and at the end of the day, the artificial contraceptive market worldwide is somewhere, people have estimated, around $15 billion. $15 billion buys a lot of opinion. So it's very tough for young men and women to get real authentic answers on some of the evils of this medication. Let's move on now to Dr. Malali's preventive medicine tip of the day. What do you have for us today, Andrew? Well, I have another wonderful tip from the United States Preventative Screening Task Force related to colorectal cancer screening. And the statement is relatively simplistic, but I think there's a bit to unpack. It states that folks should be screened for colon cancer between the ages of 50 and 75 years old. That's very good. I remember going through that about four years ago. What does that screening involve, Dr. Mullally? Well, I, I always, whenever I read these, I try and think of what are, what are the top three things that we need to know. And I think number one would be that there is a 4.4% chance of developing colon cancer in your lifetime and in my life, in everyone's life, about one in 23 people will get colon cancer. And what makes one more at risk for colon cancer? There's a lot of things. American diet actually is one of the things that increases it. Obesity, smoking, many of the usual suspects that we speak against. But one of the things that really struck me is out of the folks that get this, we, we all know someone, I'm sure, who has had colon cancer. One in three actually die of the disease. So it's actually the second leading cause of cancer deaths, about 8% of cancer deaths. Wow. You know, as I think about that relative to my specialty of women's health, everyone that we stop on the street, I'm sure could say that a woman ought to have a mammogram. But colon cancer is the number one cancer killer of women. Now, it's not the most common cancer, but it's the number one cancer killer. Mm. And far too little is said about screening for colon cancer relative to screening for breast cancer, for example. Well, my tip number two points to the fact as to why we start after the age of 50. And the fact is, is that 90% of these cancers don't happen until you're 50 years old or older. And so it's relatively safe to go for your first 50 years without doing invasive screening. But beyond that, it'd really be wise to do that. We usually recommend screening on a regular basis. We know that about 20 to 30% of people have polyps and colon polyps develop into cancer. It takes about eight to 10 years. And what is a polyp? A polyp is like a little growth or a little mushroom on the inside of the colon. And just as you might imagine, it can be plucked off and truly removed before it turns into cancer. And so you have an eight to 10 year time frame to pluck it off before it becomes cancer. Very good. And what is your third tip? The third tip is there's many ways to screen. The most important and my favorite is a colonoscopy. I think they're the best because you can also affect treatment at the time of screening if needed. There are other types of screening, including testing the stool for blood, testing the stool for cancer DNA, even doing CAT scans. However, none of these are as effective and in the, in the result, you would have to go for a colonoscopy to have the treatment. So I do recommend every 10 years for somebody at an average risk, but then if you're at a higher risk for either a family history or a personal history of polyps, you may benefit from having more frequent screenings. You know, I think, I think Tom, there's some actually some really new research that shows that the only people worse than uh, men patients are male physician patients. Um, and so uh, we're pretty terrible about getting screenings done. So I think all of our listeners, particularly male healthcare providers, if you're 50 years old, you need a colonoscopy, just do it. Thank you, Dr. Mullally. And before our break, I'll ask the medical trivia question of the day. Listen carefully. If you were sailing amidst small islands known as the Islets of Langerhans, where would you be? And what is the most valuable export of these islets? Tom, I think the answer to that question is going to be really sweet. Don't you know it. So, <laughs> until after our break, this is Dr. Doctor from Redeemer Radio Studios signing off. Hello, and this is Dr. Andrew Mullally along with Dr. Tom McGovern, and this is Dr. Doctor. We are discussing health matters because people matter. 
And we're here today with our guest, Dr. Christopher Stroud, who is one of our normal co-hosts, but we thought that he has such an interesting story and history that we wanted to bring him in for a dedicated interview to share with our listeners. So, Chris, thank you for coming in on this official basis. It's my pleasure. Always good to be here, doctor, doctor, doctor. (laughs) (laughs) So, Chris, let's start off with some of the the basics, kind of the background information for what's been a very interesting life story that, that you've shared with us before. Tell us a little bit about where you went to school. You started out in Florida, correct? Sure. I went to Florida State University, the Seminoles in North Florida for my undergraduate. Then I went to the University of Florida in Gainesville. And then I did my residency in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Virginia, which is also the place where I met my amazing wife. See, I tell folks I'm from Michigan, so I moved south for the weather. But you kept moving north, and now you're in Fort Wayne. I would never go back, never go back. I enjoyed the time that I spent in the sunny state, but it pales in comparison to Northeast Indiana. Well, Chris, why did you choose obstetrics and gynecology as a specialty? You know, that's interesting how physicians and other healthcare providers choose what they end up doing, isn't it? And and to be honest with you, it's been almost 25 years, and I, I sort of struggle to remember. I remember liking urology, And I remember liking the urologists that were our teachers. But then it occurred to me that most of my patients would be men. (laughs) And that didn't seem very good. And then I had an experience in OBGYN where I loved the patients. I loved the instructors. And it was a match. And it was a decision I'm I'm so thankful that I made. Because I've noticed that today there seemed to be a very high percentage of OBGYN specialists who are women as compared to men. Is that true? Yeah, it's true really across all specialties, unlike when I went to medical school in the late 80s, early 90s, where most of the medical students were male, and then it became about 50-50, and now the majority of medical students are female, and certainly in OBGYN now, the overwhelming majority of physicians, or new physicians anyway, uh, are female. I think in a lot of programs and a lot of areas, we're seeing sort of a resurgence of, of male OBGYNs, but for the past several years, the majority have been women. Now, today you wanted to talk about something that will probably interest our female listeners, and that is naprotechnology. What is that? Sure. Naprotechnology, or the Creighton Fertility Model naprotechnology, is an approach to treating fertility problems that's born through about three decades of research. Many people know of the Billings ovulation method of natural family planning. And Dr. and Ms. Billings, along with the founder of the Creighton Method Naprotechnology, Dr. Tom Hilgers, were very close friends. They worked together. And Naprotechnology and Creighton is really an extension of the original Billings method. Fascinating. I did not know that. It works with the, the natural science of a woman's menstrual cycles. So NAPRO stands for Natural Procreative Technology. Unpack that. What do you mean by natural? Yeah, we're looking at the fertility system as it's designed to work. Um, You know, if heart tissue is not behaving like heart tissue, there's something wrong with it by definition. Likewise, if the fertility system is not working the way that it's naturally designed, there's something wrong. Our job is to find what's wrong and repair that. And then procreative. The second word. Yeah, you know, the, the ability, our natural ability to procreate, to create life, to reproduce, to achieve pregnancy. And then technology, that almost seems like a contradiction in terms to have something that's natural technology. How do you explain that? Well, it is an interesting choice of words. The NAPRO technology, for the most part, represents the interventional side uh, of the Creighton Fertility Model. So the Creighton Fertility Model is a menstrual tracking cervical mucus observation science that will diagnose, if you will, a problem. The NAPRO technology is our philosophical and interventional approach to repair any problems that we find. So is the only purpose of NAPRO technology to help with infertility? No, absolutely not. I mean, we use Creighton Fertility Model, NAPRO technology, to help couples avoid pregnancy, perhaps, As a part of the charting system, we uncover things such as thyroid disorders, pituitary gland disorders, adrenal gland disorders, endometrial cancer or precancer, and the like. Now, Chris, I finished medical school and residency very recently, and nowhere in my official training did I ever hear of NAPRO technology. How how did you 
stumble upon this and, and tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's interesting. I started my quest as a result of uh, some really good advice from a local priest who asked me never to use his name in this context. He said to me, you need to go talk to Dr. Patrick Holly. Many of our listeners know Dr. Holly is a longtime, well-respected, tremendous uh, physician here in Fort Wayne. And I knew Dr. Holly did this thing, and I knew that he was a good Catholic, and that's about all I knew. And we sat down one night, and he started talking about NEPR technology and the Creighton model, and it became clear to me it's something that I wanted to do. How does it differ from other methods of dealing with infertility or similar problems? Yeah, it's a great question. So it's a, a disease-based or a problem-based approach, you might say. And so when I think of that, I think of an analogy. If you went to a cardiologist and you said to the cardiologist, if I get on the treadmill, I get chest pain. And the cardiologist said to you, that's no problem. If you'll take two Vicodin before you get on the treadmill, your chest pain will go away. Most of us would look at that cardiologist and say, you're nuts. What about my heart? And in this analogy, he would say, you didn't ask me about your heart. You asked me about your chest pain. I fixed it. Pay at the door. And Vicodin, for our listeners, is just a narcotic painkiller that does nothing to the heart itself, correct? Right. In this analogy, I'm trying to demonstrate we're confusing symptom from disease. Excellent. So in every area of contemporary medicine, we look at symptoms as icons or pointers to disease. If chest pain usually means there's some problem with the heart and its vascular system. The problem's not the chest pain. That's the symptom that's pointing to the underlying disease. If you just tuned in, this is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where today Dr. Andrew Mullally and Dr. Tom McGovern are interviewing Dr. Chris Stroud about NAPRO technology. So I'm remembering back to my rotations in gynecology and obstetrics, and for many symptoms, whether they be pain or painful periods or abnormal bleeding, I, I thought the test was actually really easy because the answer usually was supposed to be try birth control and see if it works. How would your answer be different than what I was taught in medical school? Well, whenever I'm asked that, I usually refer back to that same little story about the cardiologist in the chest pain. So a young woman comes to see me who's having debilitating, irregular, or heavy, or painful periods. We could prescribe birth control pills for her, but that's the Vicodin before you get on the treadmill. My job as a physician, which is consistent with contemporary medicine in every other specialty, is to ask why. The disease is not the heavy bleeding. That's the symptom. Why is she having heavy bleeding? Why are her periods unusually painful? I need to get to that answer and then repair that and then watch the symptoms go away. I think NAPR technology really stands as an indictment of modern gynecology because so often people do just get a pat on the back, we'll try this, I'm sorry we don't have something better. You had mentioned several things in addition to infertility that people can treat. What, what would be the best way to get started if someone wanted to learn about this for, for themselves or for a loved one? Yeah, you could go to CreightonModel.com uh, online, and that will get you started reading about the Creighton method, the charting method, how do you find a certified instructor, or they're called practitioners, to learn the charting method. Those of us who are certified in the Creighton model are called medical consultants, and a practitioner would help you learn to chart your cycles and then help you know, identify problems with the chart and then refer to a medical consultant for intervention and treatment. And Creighton is named after Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska, and that's spelled C-R-E-I-G-H-T-O-N if you want to look it up on the internet. That's correct. You know, in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, with the advent of in vitro fertilization uh, or artificial insemination, some people call it, uh, to your point, Dr. Mullally, really all thinking in women's health pivoted to IVF, and we stopped learning about some of these some of these problems that we had studied for for generations. Really, everything became IVF and contraception. You know, I had a patient just this past week who was sharing a story about her family, about her loved ones who are going through a battle with infertility, struggling with IVF, IVF failures, but. My understanding is that NAPR technology is 
even more effective with infertility. Is that right? It's as good or better with IVF. If you look at the statistics from the success rates of in vitro fertilization, many of those women who conceived didn't need IVF to conceive. If we were to pull them out of that success data, their percentages are much, much lower. And I can tell you anecdotally in our practice, we see women every day that are now pregnant from NAPR technology interventions that failed maybe multiple very expensive in vitro fertilization procedures. And if you think about it, it's because the IVF never got to the root of the problem. Now, IVF is something that is so mainstream in modern medicine. And I know before you practice NAPR technology, you were what you may call a secular OB-GYN what, what did you think about these natural methods? I mean, did, did you have any knowledge of them or any thought at all? You know, I thought it was a bunch of wacky Catholics. Uh, I, 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 didn't, <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't know. And like most physicians, most OBGYNs, I was never taught. You know, so it was really complete ignorance of the issue. I was taught, like you in residency, if a woman can't become pregnant, you refer her to a so-called reproductive endocrinologist, uh, and they'll likely do in vitro fertilization, and that'll be wonderful, and she'll be pregnant. Never thinking about the ethical consequences of the life that's created in the lab and may be destroyed or lost. Never thinking about the underlying cause, but merely pivoting to IVF. I, I can only imagine the, the stories that, that you've had. I've I've had a chance to walk that road with some of my patients, especially the ones with infertility, um, in conjunction with yourself or other medical providers with NAPRO technology. And it's amazing that the women who've had multiple miscarriages and then become pregnant or who have struggled with the in inability to conceive. Do you have any, I'm sure you have loads, but do you have any particular stories that you'd like to share? You know, I think it only in a general sense, because there, there are too many, but there's so many recurring themes. And that is, I think the thing that strikes me the most, even when I give devastating news, maybe I'm going to tell a couple after a long journey, it certainly appears as though you're not called to be biologic parents. Without exception, when I tell that to someone, they say thank you. Because what they really wanted was answers. They've been bounced around. They tried IVF. They never understood what was wrong. Even when the news is bad, uh, it represents an answer to maybe decade-long questions. Well, that ends the first half of our interview with Dr. Stroud on NAPRO technology. And we'll be right back with more Dr. Doctor coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. back with Dr. Chris Stroud on Dr. Doctor. I'm Dr. Tom McGovern. With me today interviewing Dr. Stroud is Dr. Andrew Mullally, and we're covering the topic of NAPRO technology. Chris, this is a wonderful topic. I, I know this is something... I couldn't agree more. <laughs> you've, you've dedicated your life to, but I think it's something that's so important for our listeners. You know, one of the things that I'm very passionate about, as I think many of us are, is medical ethics, and especially as they relate to our Catholic faith. I know there's a lot of Catholics who think um, incorrectly that IVF is their only option, and not only that, that it might be a morally licit or acceptable option for them to pursue. But we know ethically that IVF is not legitimate in any way, and we have a better option. Can you explain that to us, or can you walk us through why, why there's such a disconnect between really what many Catholic listeners may know about reproduction and IVF in particular? Yeah, certainly. I mean, no one would argue, I think, that pursuing pregnancy is bad. However, and it dates back to passages in Genesis, there are limits to what we can do to achieve pregnancy. Uh, if you remember, and I, I can't quote the verse, but there's stories of some pretty illicit things to try to achieve heirs in the Old Testament. And it's very clear there are limits to what can be done. The problem from a Catholic perspective with in vitro fertilization is it separates the marital act from conception. And you just can't do that. The Bible's riddled with examples of why that's wrong. We believe as Catholics that it's morally wrong to separate the marital act from the actual procreation. And if you think about what happens in in vitro fertilization, eggs are taken from the woman surgically, 
sperm are taken from the man, they're placed in a lab and fertilized, and now you have children in a lab that are managed by a technician and inventoried as though they were property. Children are a gift. They're not a right. If they were a right, they'd be property. If they were property, we'd probably sell our teenagers on eBay, right? <laughs> um, but they're a right, and they have to be treated as such. They shouldn't be managed in a quality control mechanism, in a production mechanism like a factory, in a laboratory. I've heard that IVF is the flip side of contraception. With contraception, you have so-called love without life or the possibility of life, whereas with IVF, you have life, though without the loving act that leads to it. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. I think our listeners are probably thinking too, well, what is this nice young couple supposed to do? They desperately want to have children. They're faithful, authentic Catholics. They have no option, but... Catholics are pro-life, right? You're supposed to have kids, aren't you? Isn't IVF would only make sense if you're supposed to have kids. Exactly. But we know that all parents, first of all, are not called to biologic parenthood. But even more important than that, a couple should never, ever feel as though they have to either pursue pregnancy or follow the teachings of their faith. You don't have to choose. And NAPR technology, Creighton Fertility Model, represents a faithful, effective alternative to the secular approach of in vitro fertilization. So, so people can treat their infertility without separating the unitive and procreative aspects. Absolutely. Wonderful. What is it? about NAPRO technology that gives a higher fertility rate than other reproductive medicine apart from IVF. What are they missing out that NAPRO does? You know, a desire to treat the problem, a disease-based approach to fertility management, an understanding that a woman is designed to be pregnant. She could choose to be a professional soccer player or a physician, (laughs) but by her design, she is designed to be pregnant. If she is engaging in the marital act and not pregnant, something is wrong by definition. Now, isn't interesting? That seems very logical, yet very controversial depending on our audience. But with an understanding of that design and a willingness to look for the problem, to solve that problem, and then allow the couple to figure out, are they called a biologic parenthood or not? But it seems like there must be many OBGYN doctors who are not Catholic, who are yet men and women of goodwill, Wouldn't some of them want to find another way to help their patients, or are they just drilled this and it's just this huge blind spot because no one unveils it to them? I think it's a little of both, but probably more of the latter. You know, in medical training, we really get tools that we can put in our toolbox. We learn how to treat, in your case, a skin problem, right? We learn how to treat asthma. We learn how to treat a cough. We learn how to treat infertility. And there isn't time sometimes in medical training to really think through the philosophy as well as the physiology behind some of those treatments. But I think, interestingly, we're seeing in the non-Catholic medical community that's pro-life, we're seeing physicians come around to the understanding that IVF is not pro-life and, in fact, is anything but. I had an opportunity recently to speak at the annual meeting of the Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. Ah, yes. And we're seeing an increasing number of non-Catholic OBGYNs who are saying, wait a second, contraception may be an abortifacient. I'm pro-life. I've got to rethink my position on that. It's very very dangerous when you get thinking about these things. (laughs) One thing leads to another. And there's really, there's really no stopping. That's it's, right. It's like uh, C.S. Lewis said when he was an atheist. A young atheist cannot be too careful about the books he chooses to read. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. Well, what are some of these things concretely you do to look at the underlying problem that many OBGYN reproductive doctors might not be looking at? Yeah, you know, if there's a public enemy number one in fertility challenges, it's the disease of endometriosis. Endometriosis is a very common condition that wreaks havoc on women's reproductive systems. So so what is it? What's exactly going on? It's something with the inner lining of the uterus? That's correct. The inner lining of the uterus, called the endometrium, migrates outside of the uterus via a mechanism that no one can explain. And it sets up shop, if you will, in distant lands, but it behaves like it's still inside the uterus. If you think about it, that's very similar to what a cancer does that spreads. But it's not cancer. It's not a cancer, but it behaves in many ways like a cancer. And it's horribly inflammatory. So 
things stick to it. That's the source of pain in so many women who have endometriosis. And what is inflammatory mean in this regard? Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a natural process in the body when we encounter an infection or a foreign agent to mount what's called an inflammatory response where white blood cells and a whole host of chemical reactions take place to fight off that offending agent. There's a lot of disease processes that are characterized by inflammation like arthritis or sure. psoriasis in your area and yes. some others. This happens in endometriosis, but it can happen inside the pelvis and destroy the fallopian tubes, and it causes all kinds of problems. So does the body realize that the endometrium is where it doesn't belong and it's trying to get rid of it? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure that we know. There's a lot of theories as to how the inflammatory process works there. At the end of the day, it causes pain in many women who have it. Although the absence of pain doesn't mean a woman doesn't have it, it can block the fallopian tubes. The inflammatory response can be toxic to sperm and egg. Okay. What's poorly understood, uh, or I shouldn't say poorly understood, but poorly practiced is endometriosis is a surgical disease. It needs to be cut out like a cancer. It's very, very common for gynecologists to burn it or to cauterize it. Yet there's plenty of data and research that shows that does no good. Wow. I grew up in the South with fire ants. You can kick a fire ant hill over, and in an hour, it's back. Endometriosis <laughs> is much like that after being burned. It has to be cut out with a passion. And yet OBGYN doctors are f surgeons, and the original dictum of the surgeons is, when in doubt, cut it out. <laughs> what happened here that they don't want to cut? Yeah, it's interesting. I think a poor understanding of the physiology and being told that's what you do. Cutting out endometriosis can involve some pretty advanced surgical techniques that can take a long time and a lot of work that can come with some risk. And so I think there's a natural tendency to say, gosh, they should just go have IVF. That'd be much easier. So is all the unwanted tissue you're cutting out outside the uterus? Yes, endometriosis is outside the uterus and we resect it just like you would a skin cancer. Wow, I can relate to that. <laughs> I didn't understand this before. Thank you so much. What, what, I mean, apart from the surgical technique of cutting it out, are there other things that as a naprotechnology doctor you do differently than regular OB-GYNs when you're performing surgery? Uh, we do a lot of uh, almost obsessive compulsive things to prevent <laughs> adhesions or scar tissue. You know, scar tissue formation is the enemy of all things fertility. So we, I, I like to think of when I leave the pelvis at surgery, I want it to be like one of those beaches at a five-star resort that someone <laughs> rakes every morning. We don't want to leave any footprints behind. We want to leave the tissue in a better state than we found it. So we do a lot of very special microsurgical techniques, often using the da Vinci robot to make sure that we don't cause damage while we're treating disease processes. It, it makes me think of someone who, who has the understanding that these organs might be used again someday. I, I can recall even very good-willed uh, doctors saying, you know, this person has had their, you know, token 2.1 children. They're not going to use this again, so we don't have to take as good of care of it. But I, th I think there would be a, a value in probably seeking out someone who takes the extra time for fertility purposes. Yeah, I mean, again, I think the most important message we could leave our listeners is that a couple never has to choose between their faith and their fertility. The teachings of the church are right here, as they are everywhere, and one doesn't have to feel caught between those things. There is a better way. I've had the privilege of seeing uh, one of Chris's videos when he was doing surgery, and believe me, he is as obsessive-compulsive doing his surgery as he, he talks about. He's incredibly gentle. That's a, you know, that's a fundamental of microsurgery, and uh, there's nothing, at least in my mind, more rewarding than seeing couples that have struggled for fertility. Sometimes they've tried AVF and realized, we can't do this for a, a host of reasons, and then to get to play a small part in helping them achieve the pregnancy they desire. There's just nothing more rewarding. Have you ever had a patient go through treatment with you with NAPRO technology and then ask you, why didn't any other doctors ever tell me about this? Well, you know, I think that happens all the time. I mean, it's very common. But I think a lot of our authentically Catholic physicians probably have similar experiences in other specialties. But yeah, I do hear that a lot. I don't have an answer because I was certainly guilty of that for a long time. I think it's just a lack of an opportunity to know there's a better way. Well, Chris, we've got to thank you for coming on and spending time dedicated to this topic. I think it's something that 
really, we should have a, a goal as Catholics who are in the know of sharing this with our loved ones. I mean, one of the most challenging things is when someone's struggling with a medical issue, be it gynecology or an infertility issue, we want to support them. But sometimes, especially if it's IVF, we really shouldn't support them in that way. So thank you for equipping us with a few more tools so hopefully we can go and share this with others. It's my pleasure. We'll be right back with more Dr. Doctor coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. And we're back. This is Dr. Andrew Mullally with Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud. This is Dr. Doctor, a trustworthy medical information source for Catholics coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. So, Tom, we've got to know the answer to the non-trivial medical trivia. Yes, and the question today is, if you were sailing amidst small islands known as the Islets of Langerhans, where would you be? And what is the most valuable export of these islets? Is this somewhere in Africa? It, there are many of them in Africa, yes, as on virtually every other continent of the world, because the islets of Langerhans are actually in the pancreas. Okay. And their most valuable export, as you know, is? Insulin. Insulin. In fact, the islets of Langerhans are small, you know, spherical groups of cells in certain parts of the pancreas where the blood is flowing the best, where insulin is made. And the purpose of insulin is to take a glucose from our bloodstream and either get it to where it's going to be used or to store it as a starch called glycogen. And 70% of the you know chemicals exported as hormones from the pancreas are insulin. And the other main chemical made by the islets is glucagon, which does the opposite of what insulin does. If our body needs glucose, it takes that starch in the liver and breaks it down into basic blood sugar known as glucose. And of course, the number one disease related to problems with insulin would be diabetes, which I'm sure Dr. Malali sees far more often than I do. Well, I got to say, Tom, I was always taught that dermatologists were pretty superficial. They were only skin deep. We are. Uh, but that's pretty <laughs> deep for you going all the way to the pancreas. All the way. Oh, there are, there are diseases related to something called a glucagonoma, which can cause certain characteristic skin manifestations. So once in a while, we had to look under the hood into the engine of the car, of the body, to see what was going on. Well, I think with today's trivia question, Tom, you have made the pancreas interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sorry, Chris. But uh, from the pancreas, we'll move on to a book recommendation. And since the year of 2018 is the 60th anniversary year of the release of Pope Paul VI's document on human life, or in Latin, Humanae Vitae, I thought it would be good to recommend this. In this document, you can find online the Vatican website at 6,900 words, only 31 paragraphs. You can read it in about half an hour. And I think this document has been somewhat important in your life, Chris. Oh, it has. I mean, for lack of a better phrase, it was life-changing, certainly career-changing. I mean, you can't read Humana Vitae and walk away untouched. I think it's impossible. Uh, I think, too, one of the striking things about it is it's written in such a pure language. Even a simple OBGYN like me can understand it. it <laughs> it's not like reading, you know, some of the church fathers that take a lot of time and an intellectual energy to do. Humana Vitae is flowing, it's relatively straightforward, and it's beautiful. And I assume you've also read it, Andrew. Well, you know, my favorite thing about Humana Vitae, and especially the, the parts of it that I've read more than once, is how it calls people out by individual groups. It calls out doctors yes. and scientists. It yes. calls out lawmakers and laymen. It really calls out everybody in regard to the truth about human life, humani vitae. And so I, I would encourage everyone to read it, especially with a keen eye for the part that's really speaking to them in their state in life. And, and you most, know what's, what's amazing, I think, in terms of the history and the genius of Pope Paul VI was humani vitae represented the exact opposite direction that the world thought Pope Paul VI would go. Yes. Right, He was under tremendous pressure to change church teaching on contraception and by extension on matters life. Uh, and I, I'm told, and I'd like to get my hands on it, there's a Life magazine cover that has a picture of Pope Paul VI that was called the New Liberal Pope. He was going to change church teaching. And instead, 
he went against the culture and wrote Humana Vitae on life and the beauty of it instead. And he's to be, he's to be revered for, for that courage and that insight. Well, in fact, now he's blessed, Pope Paul VI. That he is. He looked like he was carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders after the Second Vatican Council, according to those who, who saw him in person. It was very, very difficult for him because we know what happened in the church after that time. In fact, our own Catholic Medical Association in 1968 had over 10,000 members. And that year, the organization was decimated because so many people left over that issue. Even though formally the organization supported the Pope's teaching, many people left. And from 10,000 members over the next 10 to 15 years, it dwindled down to 300. And it's only in recent years that our Catholic Medical Association is uh, seeing a period of rapid growth again. You know, the thing that struck me the most about the encyclical is when Pope Paul VI points out that it is perfectly acceptable for Catholics to elect not to have more children. Yes. But it's not acceptable for them to use a morally illicit means to accomplish that goal. And he goes on to point out that periodic abstinence and natural family planning and what would later become NAPR technology and the Creighton fertility model are morally sound and acceptable ways for a couple that's prayerfully discerned they shouldn't have more children to achieve that goal. Yeah, most people refer to it as the birth control letter, but it's about so much more than that. They only look at it as a negative. What does it prohibit? But they don't talk about what it promotes, which is a beautiful relationship in marriage. And I, I might like to pick up on that and make a promotion, too, for Blessed Pope Paul VI. Wouldn't it be nice if his miracle, the miracle he needs for canonization, comes from NAPRO technology. <laughs> because we have so many opportunities, and as we know, even locally, thousands and thousands of people are benefiting this. Maybe we'll have a new saint for NAPRO technology, <laughs> Saint Pope Paul VI. That would be hard to disagree with. Well, now we'll move on to some of our listener questions, which have been enjoyable by the, the co-hosts here. Yeah, Tom, you've you've got to ask me a few questions, and you've got to ask uh, Chris some as well. So I'd, I'd like to turn it around and ask you one that I've got to answer before. From our listeners, have you ever had an opportunity, not an opportunity rather, were you ever cornered into a position where you had to compromise your Catholic faith in your role as a physician? In... January and February of 1988, I was in my third year of medical school, and I was on an Army scholarship. So for my obstetrics and gynecology rotation, I chose not to stay at Mayo Clinic where I was in medical school because the average third-year medical student got to deliver exactly one half a baby on each rotation. And I didn't know which half I was going to get to deliver, so I thought (laughs) I would go somewhere where I would get to deliver more. And as it was, I went to an Army medical center in Hawaii where I got to deliver 21 babies as a third-year medical student. But before going here, I was in trepidation because I knew that I was Catholic and I would be asked to do some things I wouldn't want to do. And so I read two documents on the airplane on the way to Hawaii. One of them was Donum Vitae, which came out the year before in 1987, which dealt with in vitro fertilization. And then I I also read Humanae Vitae. And I had them both with me on the rotation. In fact, I took them to the hospital with me. I thought they would give me some solace. And while I was there, I had to tell them I wasn't going to participate in birth control or in assisting with sterilizations. And I remember while I was there, I was in the locker room one day where you get your scrubs on to go to the operating rooms. And there was a chief resident there in OB-GYN who was originally from Hungary. And I later found out his mother had aborted his 12 older brothers or sisters until he was born. And he was somehow, when he grew up, a Catholic altar boy. But he told me he would do whatever he could so that I would never become uh, a primary care physician in the military. And at the time, I wanted to be a family physician. So I was very uncomfortable. And while I was there, I actually gave a scientific talk on natural family planning, which was stopped halfway through, even though my staff member, a colonel, a Catholic, a self-proclaimed extraordinary minister of the Eucharist at church stopped me halfway and said, oh, this is just garbage. We can't listen to this. He said, you're one of the best presenters we've ever had. And all I was presenting was science. And he couldn't stand to hear the truth of natural family planning. So what happened is from there, I, dis- I changed my mind. I ended up not going into family practice for, for reasons unrelated to this. But in my internship, I was doing a a rotating internship where every four weeks I did something different. My first two months were supposed to be obstetrics and gynecology. But 
I told the head of the department of OBGYN I would not assist with sterilization or contraception. He didn't say anything except, you're not allowed on my rotation. <laughs> uh, I later found out that in his free time, he flew his plane around Georgia doing abortions. So what they did with me instead was gave me two months of alternate rotation. So the first month or four weeks, they said, well, we're going to stick you on the surgery service where you can you know, be in the hospital 80 plus hours a week, you know, sleeping six or seven hours every other night, whether you needed it or not. Well, by the end of that rotation, they figured out I wasn't a troublemaker. And so they said, you know what, would you like to be a surgeon? And I said, well, thanks, but no, I'm not sure what I want to do, but I don't think I quite want that. And they said, well, you have another rotation left when you were supposed to be, do OBGYN and we're going to let you do whatever you want, which was like a gift. I said, maybe I'll do something where I can sleep. <laughs> so I asked one of the chief residents who had to go out in the military the next year and work at a troop medical clinic. And I was going to have to do that. What do you wish you had learned? And he said, oh, we saw skin all the time. and didn't know what the heck we were looking at. So I said, great, I'll do a dermatology rotation. And on that rotation... I had the experience with this Southern gentleman. His name was Dr. Marshall Gwill. I assure you that in the dictionary next to Southern gentleman is his picture. It has to be. But after two weeks of this rotation of the four weeks, he said, Tom, I really think you should consider doing this. You'd be really good at it. I never had anyone else in my life say something like to that to me. And to this day, I am thankful to Marshall Gwill that I am in dermatology and I would not be in dermatology had it not been for following the beautiful teaching of Humane Vitae. So yes, there, there is a link. I was asked to do things. I didn't do them. It was an uncomfortable year of internship because my fellow interns hated me. Why? That first rotation, there were supposed to be four of us sharing every fourth night call. Without me there, that was two months of them having every third night call. Ooh. Awake all night the first, post-call the second, one normal night the third, repeat. I'm sure that made you popular with your friends. I was so very popular. Well, Tom, I think I can say safely that all of the many, many patients, I'm sure thousands if not more, that you've treated their serious cancers, they're glad that we ran you out of OBGYN. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. And we'll say uh, goodbye to another issue of Dr. Doctor. Well, keep in mind, listeners, the healthcare decisions you make today could have eternal consequences. So choose wisely. Choose Catholic. <laughs>